So Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 5, reading through verse 21. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever, call, whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, can they, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good, new, good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So one of the things you're going to see, I think, as I was looking at this and studying this passage in particular, and then kind of reflecting on both Romans 9 and looking a little bit ahead in Romans 11, this, this section here, Romans 9 through 11, Paul is like bringing out all the Old Testament guns. I mean, he is, he is quoted from Isaiah. He's quoted from Joel. He's quoted from the Psalms. He's quote, you know, mostly Isaiah and Deuteronomy. I mean, he is just like coming out with, with all kinds of proof from the Old Testament to talk about how the Jews should have known these things. <laughs> Right? You know, this is in your scriptures. Kind of reminds you of what Jesus says whenever somebody comes up to Jesus and they ask him a question. And what does Jesus often say to them? He says, Have you not read? <laughs> it's like, Don't you read your Bibles? <laughs> it's kind of almost what he says there. And, and it's, it's not meant as an insult as much as it is a rebuke. It's like, You should know these things. You know, he says that to Nicodemus Are you a teacher in Israel and yet you do not know these things? So. Paul cites a lot of Old Testament scriptures here to, and that's kind of how he works with the Jewish people, right? He wouldn't do this if he was talking to a Gentile, mostly Gentile crowd, because they would not have at this time any knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. But when he's talking to a Jew, you know, if he's directly addressing Jewish people, he is showing them from their scriptures that Jesus is Lord, that you should have accepted this um, Man as your Messiah. 
It was just some, that's not even in my notes. That was just kind of thoughts I had as I was going through this. But So here we are in the middle of this section in Romans in which Paul here is considering the plight of his fellow countrymen, the Jews. And essentially it's this, if the gospel is for all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Gentile, then why haven't more Jews believed? That's the question he's struggling with. That's the question he's addressing in these three chapters. Why haven't more Jewish people believed? This is their message. And this fact causes Paul great sorrow and great anguish as he laments the unbelief of his countrymen. We saw that in Romans 9 verse 2. We saw that again in Romans 10 verse 1. So he's exploring this conundrum, this this confusion, this issue in Romans 9 through 11 through three lenses, as we said earlier when we started here. So he's going to look at this problem through three perspectives. The first one, which you see mostly in Romans chapter 9, is through the lens of God's sovereignty. So through the lens of God's sovereignty, in which we learn Paul says, not all Israel are Israel. Not all who are descended from Abraham are, his, are the chosen people. And he goes through the history of the patriarchs to prove that. And then he goes on to say that God has, as the potter, has the absolute freedom and sovereignty to do what he wants with humanity. He can choose some for salvation and he can leave the rest for damnation. And then second, as we began to look last week, and as we'll see this week as well, is the lens of Israel's responsibility to believe the gospel. They were responsible to seek a righteousness by faith, yet they pursued it as if it were by works. And he shows, he's like, look, Gentiles were receiving it by faith. They were receiving a righteousness they didn't seek. And they didn't seek it because they didn't know any better. They didn't know any better to seek. To seek it. So it comes to them and they receive it freely and gladly. But Israel did not pursue it by faith. They had the right pursuit. They had the right goal in mind. They wanted righteousness, which is a good thing. But they pursued it through the wrong means. They thought they could attain it by works of the law. So Paul will close that section in uh, verse 3 of chapter 10, where, or maybe it's verse 2. Where they, he says, my countrymen, they have a great zeal. They, have, they, they are on fire for the Lord, but they do not have knowledge. So they have zeal without knowledge, and that is a bad combination. And then as we will see starting next week, we're going to look through the lens of God's purpose for Israel. As we look at the future of Israel in Romans chapter 11. But right now, where we are, we're in the middle of this second section that talks about Israel's responsibility to believe the gospel and to seek righteousness by faith. So we saw last time that they stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Christ, and how Christ had sort of interpreted the law to them. He destroys their way of thinking about the law. He destroys their way of thinking about how God requires righteousness The Jews, by and large, thought that the law was something that could be obeyed in an external and superficial way. And Jesus corrects that. He tells you, you know, just because you haven't killed anybody doesn't mean you aren't guilty of murder in your heart by bearing anger for your brother and so on. They thought that righteousness was something they could earn. They thought they could just do enough if they did enough 
God would uh, you know, accept them as righteous, and Jesus corrects that too. When he says, you need to be perfect. You know, I like to use the example of baseball, right? You come up, and if you have no at-bats, and you go your first day, you go three for three, you've got a perfect batting average. But then that first time you strike out, or you pop up, or you foul out, or whatever, you now have, you know, you're now like four for five or whatever. And you will never, ever, ever, ever get back to the thousand once you have your first out. Okay, so Jesus or God requires you to bat a thousand. Problem is, as, as humanity is concerned with the fall and inheriting Adam's guilt, we come in, we're already like 0 for 1 when we step into the plate for the first time. So we'll never, ever be able to achieve perfection. So in the end, rather than submitting to God's righteousness, they sought then to establish their own righteousness, not realizing, as Paul will say here, Christ is the end of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's also the end of any attempt to try to earn righteousness from the law. And that's where we are now as we come into the rest of Romans chapter 10. And in the end, what we're going to see is that Israel is in a state of unbelief and thus under the wrath of God because they have rejected the gospel. They have rejected the gospel message. And it's really just as simple as that. They did not believe the gospel. They did not believe their own scriptures. They did not understand what their scriptures were teaching them. That salvation has always been by grace through faith. And the fact that most Jews reject this doesn't change the fact, nor does it mean God will somehow grade on a curve for his people. Just because they're the Jews, and Paul addresses this in Romans 2, you're not going to get graded on a curve just because you're Jewish. God's not going to be like, well, that's okay. All right, we'll let that slide. If you were a Gentile, it'd be another thing, but because you're Jewish, we'll, we'll let that slide. He's not going to grade on a curve. God requires perfection. So as we look here in this first this first uh, section here in Romans 10, 5 through 21, in verse 5, um, we're going to see a principle here called live by the law, die by the law. So as verse 5 comes on the heels of what Paul has said already in verses 1 through 4, and in verse 5, Paul says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. So in other words, he's saying if you're going to try to live righteously by the law, then you better live righteously by the law or else you're going to be, because that's the standard you're going to be judged on. You're going to be judged on your, your, your performance on the law. Now, when he says here, Moses writes, he is quoting from Leviticus 18 verse five, which says there, so you shall keep my statutes. This is God speaking through Moses to the people. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And this is a basic principle you see all throughout Scripture. And you find it all throughout redemptive history. If a man does or if a person does or keeps the commandments of God, he will live. If you could perfectly keep the commandments of God, you will live by the law. Is this in dispute? Is this a disputable claim? If you can live perfectly by the law, you will live by the law? I think, it, I think that's what the Bible teaches. If Adam had obeyed in the garden, what would have happened to Adam? If he did not eat the forbidden fruit, if he passed God's test, what would have, what would have happened to Adam? We know if he, 
God says, if you eat of it, you will die. What happens if he didn't eat of it? He would live. <laughs> right? If you eat, you die. If you don't eat, you live. You would have obeyed the commandment of God. So if a man or woman could perfectly keep all the commandments of God, he or she would live. This is not controversial. The problem, of course, is that due to the fall, we're guilty before we even try, start trying to obey. We have Adam's inherited guilt. The imputed guilt of Adam is on our account. That's what we see in Romans 5, right? By, man, by one man, sin came into the world, thus all have perished because all have sinned. So Adam's guilt transferred to the entire human race. So we are guilty before we even start obeying. And then what even makes it worse is then we start to add to that guilt by committing sins of our own. So then is God speaking with a forked tongue when he says in Leviticus 18.5 uh, that if a man may live by the law, he, 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 if he keeps his statutes, he'll live by that? Is God speaking with a forked tongue, as they would say? No. No, he's not. Because living by the law doesn't just mean living by the moral law. Because if you understand the Mosaic law was, part of it was the Ten Commandments, right? But the Mosaic law was much more than just the Ten Commandments. It contained the sacrificial system. It contained the laws of cleanliness. It contained all kinds of judicial laws, how to treat your neighbor and so on and so forth. You've got all the case law that's in there. And the Mosaic law provided that sacrificial system because God knew they couldn't keep the moral law because man was fallen. So he provided a way to atone for your sins against God and against your neighbor. So if one practiced the whole law, you could live by it. You try to live a moral life. If you fail, you make atonement for that through the process that God has provided to make atonement for sin. The problem was, of course, as we saw last week, Jewish keeping of the law sort of devolved into a works righteousness mentality. It wasn't just that we try to atone through the law the way God prescribed. It's now we think we can earn our righteousness through obeying the law. But again, as we saw earlier in Romans 10:4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And it's more than just simply saying Christ ending all attempts to earn righteousness through works of the law. It also ends all the faithful obedience to the law. In other words, what I'm saying is that even if a Jew recognized their own sin and in their own failure to keep the law and avail themselves of the sacrificial system, he would still fall short because now Christ has come and he's fulfilled all of that. Right? Now that Christ is on the scene, you don't need the sacrificial system. The problem was the Jews rejected Christ. They continued to obey the law as if Christ didn't mean anything. Christ is the end of the law. He is the once for all sacrifice that fulfilled everything in the law and put an end to the sacrificial system. There's a whole book of the Bible that talks about that. The book of Hebrews where it says, don't go back. <laughs> you know, if you are a Jew, don't go back to that old system because that old system is done. Christ came, that old system has been set aside because Christ fulfilled it all, but they were still trying to go back to that way of, of living. So now, after Christ, if one wants to live by the law 
If one tries to live by the law, now that Christ is here, they're going to die by the law. That's the point. You better be able to perfectly keep the letter and the spirit of the law if you're going to reject Christ as your righteousness to God. So that's what Paul is getting across in verse 5. But then he goes on in verses 6 through 13 to show sort of the contrast, which is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that you get that verse 6 starts with a but. What's my favorite word in the Bible? <laughs> but, okay? Because usually the words before the but are the bad stuff, and usually the words after the but are the good stuff. And I like the good stuff. It's like, you know, yeah, you have to eat your vegetables in order to be able to eat dessert. So you eat the vegetables, but now dessert's here. This is the good stuff, okay? Eat your vegetables, and then you can get your dessert. So in verse six, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So you get a warning in verse 5. If you're going to live by the law, then you're going to be judged by that standard. And that gives way then now to the righteousness that is based on faith. The righteousness based on the law speaks one way. So the righteousness of the law speaks a word like this. If you're going to live by me, you're going to die by me. But now another word comes, and that word is, if you have a righteousness that is based on faith, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, just as I read verses 6 and 7, how many are wondering, like, what the heck is Paul talking about? <laughs> what is this ascending into heaven, ascending into the abyss, and everything like that? Well, Paul here in verses 6 and 7 is now quoting from another place in the Pentateuch. He's now quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses 12 and 14. Now, the context of Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you read it in context back in the Pentateuch, is talking about it. God is talking to the Jews through Moses. Moses is addressing the people. And he's talking about a time in the future from their perspective where you'll be returning back to the land after you've been exiled because you're going to disobey and God's going to exile you from the land and you're going to spend time with in a foreign country that's not your own, but you're going to call on the name of the Lord and you're going to, he's going to bring you back into the land. So it's a future return from captivity. And in, Mo, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 10, Moses says that the Lord will abundantly bless Israel when they return if they keep his commandments. And then in verses 12 through 14, Moses tells the people that they don't have to go to the greatest heights or the lowest depths to get this commandment because the commandment is near. It's on their lips. It's in their heart. The commandment that God has given to them. Well, Paul borrows this passage to contrast the righteousness of the law, the righteousness the Jews wanted to establish based on works of the law and with the gospel of free grace in Christ. So what, they're, what he's saying here is, you Jews, you don't have to ascend into heaven to, get, to bring Christ down to earth because God has already done that. God has already sent Christ down to earth to fulfill all righteousness. Neither do you Jews have to go into the abyss and raise Christ from the dead because, Christ, because God has already raised Christ from the dead and has seated him at the right hand of the Father. In other words, what Paul is trying to get across here is like God has already done the heavy lifting. 
You don't need to go to the highest heights. You don't need to go to the lowest depths. God has already done that for you. In other words, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is freely given by God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't think you have to do something to get this righteousness by faith. It has already been done for you. And then Paul says further in verses 8 through 10, but what does it say, this word? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So Paul is saying here, the scriptures are saying that the gospel word is in your mouth and it's in your heart. And it's the word that I and other apostles have been preaching to you. So this, the first word is live by the law, die by the law. The other word, the word that is near them, that is in their heart and in their mouth is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the heart of the Christian religion in verse 9 here, right? We must confess, that is to say the same thing as we must confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. We must make this confession. But it's more than just verbalizing the words and saying Jesus is Lord, okay? It's more than just saying words. It's a verbal acknowledgement of a deep, heartfelt conviction that Jesus indeed is Lord, You are confessing what you believe in your heart. So confessing Jesus as Lord is really a shorthand way of encapsulating everything the Bible teaches about Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, what he came down to do, what he had done, and where he's at now, and that he'll return, all of these things. But not only must we confess Jesus as Lord, we must believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And again, this, is, this belief entails knowing and believing what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ really means. That it was a payment for your sin. That it was a satisfaction for your sin. That God raised him from the dead as a show of sign of approval that he accepts what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. So this calls for nothing less than what the Heidelberg Catechism calls true faith in Lord's Day 7, question 21. That is, it is a sure knowledge. It's not just a, it's, it's not just a sure knowledge. It is that. It is a sure knowledge of the true facts about Jesus combined with, as they say, a hearty trust, right? That these things are so and that these are the only hope of our salvation. So it is put, putting your complete faith and trust in Jesus as Lord, and that God has raised him from the dead. Then Paul goes on in verse 10 to show that with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. So that's, you know, that heartfelt belief. It's just, it's not, again, it's not just knowing true facts. and It's not just accepting the facts are true, but it's also resting in them with a trust. So knowledge, assent, and trust. So you believe in your heart and then you confess with your mouth. This is a professing of your faith in salvation that uh, God uh, freely provides us.
Then, of course, Paul concludes this section by showing how from the Old Testament scriptures that this has always been the way of salvation. Again, this is not a new plan. This is not God's plan B, right? God wasn't like in the Old Testament, well, that didn't work. Okay, let's try something new now. No, this has been always the plan of salvation has been by grace through faith. Because then he quotes here two more uh, passages of scripture, from one from Isaiah and then one from the prophet Joel. In verse 11, for the scripture says, whenever Paul says for the scripture says, he's always quoting the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet, or at least not collected into a book yet. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Then again, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that first quotation from Isaiah 26, 16, Paul quoted this one before. If you remember from last week in, in Romans 9, 33, he cites that same verse there. And, and again, the person who believes in Jesus will not be disappointed. And that phrase literally means will not be put to shame. So if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you're not going to be put to shame. But if you trust in the law and think you can obey by works of the law, guess what? You will be disappointed. You will be put to shame on the, on the last day when you come before God with your works. And he looks at you and says, what is this you're bringing before me? I don't want that. It'd be like a cat bringing in the dead bird or the dead mouse and saying, here. You're like, I don't want that. <laughs> don't, don't bring me that. Then in verse 12, of course, we see that this is the case not just for the Jews, but for all people, Jew and Greek. Why? Because God is God of all people, <laughs> right? He did choose the Jews as his chosen people, but it was a vessel to bring blessing to the whole world. And then that last citation in verse 13 comes from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And Paul summarizes the whole section here with, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Whoever means what? It, right, whoever. <laughs> it means anybody. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. No distinction. If you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. If you place your complete faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you will be saved. Now as we come to verses 14 and 15, so if salvation comes to any and all who call upon the name of the Lord, how does that work? That's what these two verses show here. So Paul in these verses here asks a series of four rhetorical questions to show that God's ordinary means of salvation is the preaching of the gospel. Now I say ordinary because God is free to work outside of those ordinary means. God is not restricted to these means, but this is the normal way how people are saved, through gospel preaching. So you have in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? You can't call on somebody if you don't believe in that person to call, right? And then how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. 
So someone playing devil's advocate might ask, well, then how can the Jews call on Jesus if they've never been told? So Paul responds by saying, no one can call on one whom they've never heard, which is why you need missions, you need evangelism, you need the preaching of the gospel. These are necessary in order to bring the message out to the whole world. So you can't call on one whom you've not believed. You can't believe in Jesus if you've never heard. And you can't hear about Jesus if no one tells you about him. And no one is going to tell you about him unless that person is sent. So these questions highlight the necessity of gospel ministry. And it kind of reminds me of a story that you hear that R.C. Sproul tells of a time when he was in seminary and he was in a class with his mentor, John Gerstner. It was like a seminar class, so they're all kind of seated in a in a semicircle, you know, circle, and the teacher was in the middle. And Gerstner asks the class this question. He says, if God sovereignly chooses who will be saved, then why do we evangelize? Why do we need to evangelize if God sovereignly chooses who will be saved? So that question then bounced. Now, R.C. Sproul was, you know, he started on one end and R.C. Sproul's on the other end. So he's like thinking, well, surely by the time it gets to me, someone will have answered that question. But the problem was it bounced from one student to the next, to the next, to the next. And each student was like, well, I don't know. I've always wondered that one too. And then it finally gets down to R.C. Sproul. And when he gets to him, he says meekly, he replies, well, I guess it's because Jesus commands us to. And then John Gerstner, the teacher, Dr. Gerstner, kind of mockingly responds along, saying, along these lines saying, oh, sure, I guess it's no big deal that the creator of the universe and the Lord of your salvation commands you to do something. The point is, you are commanded to evangelize because those are the God-ordained and God-blessed means to spread the gospel. God chooses the ends that you will be saved. He chooses the means you, you will hear the gospel. So again, if you are saved, if you are here and you are saved, it is because at some point in your life, you heard the good news and it registered in your brain because God, by his Holy Spirit, had made you alive to receive that good news and you accept it in faith. So the point being that even though everything in Romans 9 we've talked about, God's sovereign choice and election is true, the means that God ordains and blesses is the preaching of the gospel. So this foolish, weak message of a dying and rising Savior is the message of hope and salvation to a lost and dying world. Right? Paul calls the gospel message in 1 Corinthians, he calls it weak. He calls it foolishness because the world in their unbelief calls it weak and foolish. But to us who are being saved, it is the good news. And then Paul, again, quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 7, proclaims and extols the beautiful feet of those who do bring those good news. And then as we finish here in verses 16 through 21, uh, we see that not all heeded the message of the gospel. The problem with the Jews wasn't that they didn't hear the message. It was that they did not heed the good news. They did not believe it. They did not accept it as true. So in verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So this is another quote from Isaiah 53.1 in that section about the servant. 
But, you know, the prophet saying, who has believed what we have heard? Right? The prophet goes forth preaching the, the, the message of God to the people, yet none are believing. Who has believed our report? They did hear the gospel, they just rejected it. Hearing the good news is necessary, right? You have to hear the gospel message, but just hearing it audibly is not enough. I mean, would that simply hearing the gospel message were enough? Then, But it must be believed. You have to believe it in your heart. And many Jews during the time of Jesus and Paul showed themselves unworthy, for they did not heed the good news of the gospel. Which is why in verse 17, Paul says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So though hearing is not enough, it is necessary. And it's not just hearing any old thing, but the word of Christ, the gospel message. And again, this is the God-ordained means that he will use to bring salvation to all people. Now, the remainder of chapter 10 here from verses 18 on are a series of more Old Testament quotations that have, as the end result, leaving Israel without excuse. So you're kind of backing Israel into a corner and you're getting them to the points like you realize you are dropping the ball here. (laughs) You have no excuse. You've heard the message. You've received the message. You just don't believe it. Just fess up. You don't believe the message. So he rhetorically asks in verse 18, well, surely they've never heard, have they? In other words, well, surely the Jews don't believe because they haven't heard. But then he says in verse 18, quoting from Psalm 19, verse 4, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, if you know anything about Psalm 19, it's the great... Uh, paean of praise to Revelation. The first half of it talking about general revelation, the glory of God displayed in creation. The last half of it talking about the holiness of God's word. And in Psalm 19.4, it's talking about the voice of general, general revelation going out to all the ends of the earth. In other words, the unbelievers without excuse that there is a God because all he has to do is just look up into the sky and see or look at creation and see This is from the hand of God. But Paul here uses it and applies it to the gospel message, which as we see through the book of Acts, was indeed going out into all the earth. Right? Paul and the apostles, they went all over the Roman Empire, bringing the gospel message to any and all who would hear it. And Paul always went to the Jews first. Right? Every city he went to, if they had a synagogue, he would go to the synagogue. And if they didn't have a synagogue, he'd go to find wherever the Jews were hanging out and go there. And if they didn't believe and if they rejected, then then he would then take it to the Gentiles. It's like, okay, well, you don't want to believe. I'll take the message to the Gentiles. But they aggressively evangelized much of the Roman Empire. So you can't say, well, we never heard because you had to have heard. So then the next thing in verse 19, well, maybe they didn't grasp it. Maybe it was under, maybe we just didn't understand it. Maybe it was such a hard message, we didn't get it. Maybe it wasn't clear. So in verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And then first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. 
Now he's quoting again from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Paul shows that God would provoke Israel to jealousy by giving salvation to those who are not Jews, who are not a nation, who lacked understanding. In other words, salvation was going to the Gentile people. They didn't have any experience in the Old Testament, yet they believed. In other words, the gospel message is simple enough that an un you know, an unlearned, a kind of an ignorant Gentile believer could accept it. The Jews had no excuse there either. So if Gentiles who have zero knowledge of the Old Testament can understand the gospel and believe, then the Jews can't hide behind their ignorance. And then he finishes in verses 20 and 21 with another quote from Isaiah 65. Like I said, he's really hammering them with your own scriptures here. It's like showing you my knowledge of the, of the Old Testament scriptures. So in verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Now this would be very humbling for the Jews to be shown up by a people who are not even seeking God. <laughs> you know, here's a group of people that it prided themselves on being you know, we are God seekers. We're trying to follow the law. We're trying to do all these good things. And here God is being found by people who weren't even trying. You know, this is, again, the argument he makes at the end of Romans 9. Paul is condemning the Jews with their own Bible, showing how God has made all of this clear and plainly evident for them. And then he closes in verse 21 showing that the Jews simply did not believe. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. One of my favorite phrases that in the Old Testament you see when God is speaking through the prophets to the people, he calls them oftentimes a stiff-necked people. You've seen that phrase, you know, you know it's like you just bend that head down. It's like you will not... Obey me. You are a stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate, disobedient people. So throughout the entire Old Testament, God has made it clear that one cannot be saved by works of the law. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is prefigured in the Old Testament through types and shadows, but clearly manifests in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the message that saves But the Jews, for the most part, have failed to heed that message. So God's sovereign choice to have mercy on whomever he wills and to harden whomever he wills is manifest now in Israel's failure to believe the gospel and be saved. And Israel can't sit there and say, well, God didn't choose me because when judgment day comes and the question is asked to them, what did you do with my son Jesus? They're not going to have an answer. They're going to be, well, I rejected him. I didn't think he was a Messiah. I thought he was a fake, a phony. I thought he, whatever. Well, the problem is they can't hide behind their ignorance. They can't hide behind their confusion. They were responsible to believe and they didn't. And even more so with all of the national and religious privilege that Israel had, their unbelief becomes even more stunning. Right? It's one thing if a Gentile disbelieves because they have nothing to base it on. But for a Jew to disbelieve, given everything that they've had. Remember, what does he say in Romans 9? They've had the promises, the covenants, the patriarchs, 
the pre, you know the priesthood, the prophets. You know they had all of these things. The Messiah came from your line, yet you don't believe. And the same thing goes for all of us, right? On this side of the cross, two thousand years after the cross, we're in an age where. You know, we've got, I don't know how many Bibles we've got in the pews here. And if you go to anybody's home, you probably have a number of Bibles. I've got more Bibles than I can count. So we're, in, we're swimming in Bibles, right? They're so plentiful. And you can, you can you know, in an age when, you know, Christian media, you've got podcasts, radio, TV, internet. You've got Bibles in print, Bibles online. It's so prevalent, we have no excuse, right? We have no excuse at least in this country, to not believe. We're just as guilty as the Jews are if we do not believe. Well, next time, Lord willing, on the 28th, we're going to continue looking at Israel's unbelief, but now we're going to start looking at it through the vantage point of God's purposes as we look at the remnant of Israel and probably be covering the first 10 verses of Romans 11.